Keys to Lost is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all of your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com. And welcome to this Keys to Lost feedback special. We've received so many emails and voicemails, and we thank you so much for sending all of these in. It's so nice that people are listening to us and getting back to us, expressing their views, giving us critiques of our show, giving us critiques of our analysis. I, I think that's just wonderful, and I'm so happy that you all take the time to listen and take the time to call in, write in, leave comments on our blog, tweet me. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. And as we just came off Thanksgiving, I don't know if you heard, I was on Donald's Thanksgiving special. Donaldislost.com is his website. His podcast, of course, is Donald is Lost. It was a fabulous podcast with everybody, all of the podcasters and a few fans calling in and giving their what they're thankful for about Lost and about life. And it was a really beautifully put together show. I've been sick for the last couple of days and I really was down and not feeling very good. And I listened to Donald's podcast and it made me feel so much better. So thank you, Donald, from Donald is Lost for putting that show together and brightening my day. Also, I would like to thank Anna in Indiana and Denise from the Jacob's Cabin podcast, an absolutely wonderful podcast, and Anna's been appearing on a couple of other great podcasts, too. She was on the Black Rock Theory special uh, just this last week, which I would encourage everybody to download because I really get into some great theories about Lost. And also, she was on Donald's Thanksgiving podcast, and she also has recently appeared on the Alex's Hiatus cast. Uh, where she submitted some stuff about Christianity in general and religion in Lost. And that was a very thought-provoking topic, and I thought she presented her points just wonderfully. At any rate, the reason I mention this is because they recently played an MP3 that I sent in to them uh, in response to the seven Dharma questions, and I wanted to thank them very much for their playing that and for their warm response to my answers. Please go to jacobscabinpodcast.com and check out their blog and download their episodes as well. I think they've only done like five hiatus casts, but all of them are excellent and deserve a listen. So if you haven't heard them, please go there and download them. Leslie's not here with me today. She's doing Thanksgiving weekend kind of things. So I'm kind of steering the ship all by myself. I feel a little off doing that, but I'm happy to put this feedback episode out now and get our vault cleared because we should be expecting some more feedback from you all very soon. There's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about in terms of getting some feedback from you. First off, we're getting ready to explore the character of Sawyer. So if you want to tweet me or send me an email with your thoughts about Sawyer, or we do a little segment in each character analysis called Three Words, where we try and sum up the character in three words. If you want to submit a three-words synopsis of Sawyer, please send it to us via email or tweet me, or call it in. Any way you want to send it in, we're happy to take it, and we will put them on the air 
We'll read all of them that we get. There's another thing that we want some feedback from you on uh, as well. It's looking like in our poll that Ben is going to be the next one after Sawyer that we do in terms of a character analysis. With the later start date, however, there will probably be yet another character analysis after that one. And so I'm going to put a new poll up here in a few days. The poll that we currently have is going to expire over the weekend, perhaps on Sunday. But we will put a new poll up then and lists characters for you to choose for us to analyze next. We really appreciate everyone who's voted so far. It's been pretty enthusiastic. We love seeing that kind of feedback on our blog. So thank you very much for coming and voting and uh, voting for Ben. Ben is one of my favorite characters, so I'm happy to do it. Ben is not one of Leslie's favorite characters, so she's not so excited, but she will do a bang-up job, I'm sure. She's going to probably be right on the polar opposite end of me on some of the analysis of Ben. So that's probably going to make it really fun. And one other thing that we're going to be doing over the hiatus is I came up with this idea, since we are a podcast that focused on the music of Lost, to do the rock and roll moments of Lost. Now, I sent an email out to all of the podcasters, and some of them have responded already. What I asked of them to do is to submit a moment in Lost that they think is a rock and roll moment, a moment that just exemplifies rock and roll. It doesn't really have to be rock and roll. It's just one of their favorite moments in Lost. And to submit a song idea that goes along with that scene. And what we're doing is, is we're going to mix the scene and the music together, and we're going to present them all in a special. And we would like to include you as well. So send an email to us or give us a call on the phone or tweet me with your favorite moment in Lost or your most rock and roll moment, quote unquote, in Lost, and the song that you think best goes with it. And we're going to put all of those together and put a little special out, probably kind of as our Christmas special for that. So we hope to hear from you on those topics. Again, three words on Sawyer or any thoughts about Sawyer are more than welcome. Then we're going to do Ben next, but we're going to need your help in deciding who to do after that. And submit your rock and roll moment of Lost and a song idea that you think goes with it, and we'll put them together for you. Thanks again. Let's get into the feedback. Feedback. Okay, so first off, right before Thanksgiving, I got involved in an email conversation, per se, with LazyMan9484. And they brought up some very interesting points. So I just want to read each of his emails. I responded to each of them with my own reasonings. And they would counter with other points. So I just want to read all of their points. Because I think they're very valid points. And I think they need to be heard. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I have certainly been known to be wrong before. So let me just read these emails from LazyMan9484. First email. I just want to point out one thing about the sickness. Rousseau's team didn't get 
the sickness until they went in the chamber under the temple. Even if you count the fact that all the vents lead there, Locke wasn't technically in the vent yet, so he couldn't contract the sickness. I think you're underestimating Locke's fate. He's getting dreams and he believes he's supposed to do something. So when that doesn't work, he gets angry. I don't believe electromagnetic pockets of energy have anything to do with it. He seemed angry in the swan because he believed it was his destiny to open it. He seemed clueless in the orchid because he had no idea what was going on. If you suddenly found yourself in a station that supposedly studied time travel, you would want to ask questions too. Okay, great. That's those are very good points. I I, I love them all, and and you may be right. One thing that we need to make sure that you have the right perspective on is I'm not talking about Locke in the Orchid Station. He doesn't know anything about what the station is yet at the time that I'm talking about. I'm talking about his ability to find the door. Ben tells him it's by the Imperiums, and he can't find the Imperiums. And that's why I'm saying he's clueless there. In terms of him with the vent in Exodus, I don't believe that's the point where he's infected. I believe he was infected in with walkabout. And I don't think it has anything to do with the locale of where a person is as to whether they can become infected or not. I think it has to do with contact with the smoke monster. Let's move on to your next email. I had made a point in my response to him about Locke's knowledge about things that one wouldn't seemingly know about. For instance, the moth. And here was his response. The thing about the moth, maybe it was just one of his hobbies at one time, I don't know. But in Walkabout, Locke said to his guide he'd been preparing for the Walkabout for years. So we don't know what he studied on the subject of wildlife. Maybe it was one of his dreams. I'm not doubting his dreams, but I don't believe that anybody has influence over him. Perhaps Locke is just bipolar. Those are great points, and they're all very possible, and I can't argue those. It's just that the one point that I, I will differ with you on there is that I don't believe Locke is bipolar. He's shown too much sensibility about himself off-island to be suddenly some have some kind of psychological illness on island other than the illness inflicted on him by the smoke monster in his third email we get more into about the episode with the moth where lazy man 9484 says he wanted to help charlie he knew if he was forceful in his approach he knew charlie would go back to using the second he had the chance using drugs is different than writing a letter just because he is giving him a choice doesn't mean Jacob is influencing Locke. If that was actually Jacob's doing, wouldn't he try to give Charlie the choice himself? Why use Locke as a middleman? That was just Locke, not the mystery man or Jacob. Okay, those are great points, and I totally agree that Locke's methodology is the proper methodology for Charlie. I'm just questioning where the idea comes from. And the fact that he's able to use the moth as a as a metaphor, giving him a choice, sounds a lot like Jacob. The reason why Jacob wouldn't appear to Charlie himself and give him the choice? Has Jacob appeared to any of our losties on the island? 
No, he has not. All of these things are in play in order to possibly give an influence on Locke. It's not really a controlling of his actions. I guess that's probably an overstatement. But choices are so firmly planted in his mind that he makes certain choices, in my opinion. You know, again, this is just my smoke monster theory. So I can totally see your point. Now, in my response in the email, I asked LazyMan9484 about what about the times that Locke didn't give people choices? He didn't give Saeed a choice to triangulate Daniel's signal. He didn't give Jack and Juliet a choice to get on the sub. He didn't give anyone a chance to communicate off island when he blew up the flame. Here was LazyMan9484's response to that. Those are different circumstances. He believes they belong on the island. Using drugs and leaving the island are on different levels. Each reason needs a different approach. Becoming clean needs a choice or else you'll go back to using. Keeping people on the island needs you taking away any and all means of escape. Wow, how dark is that? I mean, seriously. Listen to those words. Keeping people on the island needs you taking away any and all means of escape. Ugh, that just makes me sick. I don't want to think of Locke like that. So my response was this. Bottom line is, all decisions should be choices. And that Jack is just as guilty of unilateral decision making, and all unilateral decisions have proven in this show to be bad ideas in the long run thus far. Now, I totally agree that kicking drugs should be a choice in order to stick. But what harm is there in letting Jack and Juliet leave? What harm is there in letting Danielle be found by Saeed? He does anyway, though it's only because he gets caught in one of her traps. These aren't greater events. You know, the, the sub, the flame, these are actions of a person with an agenda and an agenda that I can't possibly see being completely authored by John Locke. He is a good man. He's being duped. Many trusting souls often are being duped. And that's what's happening to him with this influence, in my opinion. And LazyMan9484's last point is this. After this, I'm dropping it. The mystery man doesn't want people on the island, so if it was up to him, he would let people leave. That's a great point, but as I've stated, this influence is not just MIB. It's Jacob and MIB, and that points straight to that bipolar thing that you were talking about three emails ago. So thank you very much for your thoughts. I think they're awesome, and I, I really appreciate your input, and you've made me think about some things just a little differently, and I really appreciate that. So thanks for listening, and especially for writing. And I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And also, I'd like to reiterate that LazyMan9484 was the person who submitted that link to the YouTube of the John Locke rap, which I just totally enjoyed. So thank you again, LazyMan9484, for sending us that link and that way I was able to contact Aaron Collin and Dustin Dame 
and get permission to put it on the front of our third part of the John Locke character analysis. So thanks again. Moving on to another email. This one is from Just Enough on Twitter. His name is Matt, and he had submitted a tweet to me about Locke a while back, and I couldn't really make sense of it. And he since has sent in an email kind of clarifying things and extending it, because it really is hard to put a theory into 140 characters. So, let's read the email. So my thought came from something that came up on a previous podcast around the validity of John Locke being born by Immaculate Conception. The practices of the others have always interested me. The burying and burning of the dead, the temple, obsession with children, etc. But also the idea that to be leader, one had to kill their father, and the reasons why certain characters cannot kill other characters. Now this gets difficult because we don't know which practices were started by Ben, meaning that his rules might be completely crap, and which rules might have been started by someone before Ben, and which are legitimate means by which the island operates. If the island wants the leader to kill his or her father, then John Locke could never be leader if he was born by Immaculate Conception. The idea of Immaculate Conception does not mean there is no father, but rather that God is the father rather than man. So if we believe John's schizophrenic mother, in order to become leader, Locke would have to kill God and not Anthony Cooper. I think the island set up Cooper to be brought to the island through Locke for Sawyer to slay his demon and to make the others believe John was the leader without him truly being the leader. This is part of MIB's loophole. John would have to be leader in order to get Alpert to take him to Jacob. If Jacob can't be killed by MIB and Widmore can't be killed by Ben and Michael can't kill himself and Ben can't kill Locke, but Ben can stab Jacob and Locke can push Jacob into the flames to his death, then Jacob isn't ultimately in charge of anything. But why is it that Flock can't kill Jacob? Jacob may not be God, but it can be inferred that he does possess some godlike qualities. He made Albert ageless, seemingly brought Locke back to life, sent our other losties on particular paths, and seems himself to be ageless. This God, Jacob, may in fact be the immaculately conceptualized John Locke's father, and the reason why MIB would need his body in order to kill him and become the leader of the island. The island seems to have strands of people that can't kill each other or die at particular times, but has no problem with the entire Dharma initiative being wiped out, millions of red shirts shot with flaming arrows, freighter people being killed, etc. So there has to be some method to this madness. I think part of this loophole is that a child can take its father's life. We were given all these rules by others, and they are obsessed with children because they know particular children could be the offspring of Jacob and potentially kill him, perhaps. I also think the entire show has been mixed with people's consciousnesses, shifting in and out of two alternate realities. Why Locke sometimes is the coolest guy ever and really lame the next. Why Kate's mom doesn't understand why she killed her husband why Walt is special and disrupts life around himself, box legs working and not working, why the Dharma barracks look completely different when they come back. I don't care what anyone says, quote unquote Donald, they are different. 
I'm nuts, so take this theory with a grain of salt. Great podcast. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you just enough for that email. Okay, great. So you've actually introduced a theory that was discussed on the Black Rock podcast when they did their theory cast the other day. I think that was their first cast since the end of season five. So awesome thoughts. Here, here, Here's my take on a couple of those things. Yes, there does seem to be a parallel about being a leader and killing fathers. We see that Ben does kill his father and he tells Locke that Locke must kill his father as well. Personally though, the whole thing about Cooper, I'm just not on board with John being immaculately conceived or being Jacob's son. That's my own personal opinion. I think Cooper was brought to the island simply because in Man from Tallahassee, Ben said, bring me the man from Tallahassee. I don't think it has anything to do with magic boxes. I think that was all used as a metaphor to employ a manipulation by Ben on John. There's a conversation that Ben and John have in Man from Tallahassee where John basically lays it out to Ben that he shouldn't be the leader, that the others are going the wrong direction. And the proof of that is that John is not in a wheelchair and Ben is at that point. I think this scares Ben to the point where he's got to find a way in order to deflate Locke as a possible leader. And the way he does that is he gets Locke's father brought to the island by saying, bring me the man from Tallahassee. He then tells Locke that he must kill his father the same way that he did kill his own father, but I don't think it has to do with any rules. It just, he's implying the same thing and it maybe it was tough for him to do. And so therefore he thought it would be tough for Locke to do. And he wants Locke to fail at it because that way Locke cannot become the leader and Ben keeps his leadership of the others. I think it's really that simple. Now, in terms of Flock being able to kill Jacob or not, if we're going to apply your rules, then it actually has to be the actual John Locke that kills Jacob, not Flock. And the actual John Locke is laying on the beach outside the four-toed statue at the time that Jacob is killed. But it's a great theory, and I really appreciate you putting it in, and I know that some folks over at the Black Rock and, and other people are sub starting to subscribe to this, that Locke may actually be the son of Jacob, and I think it's a really, really cool idea. I'm just not on board with it yet myself. So thank you so much for that email, for sending that clarifying email. I really appreciate it, and I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. So let's move into some voicemails. This first voicemail is from Lostasil316. Hi there, Keys to Lost program. My name is Lostasil316, and I just wanted to send on a short message to you uh, to say thank you for the hard work you're doing. I was just listening to your newest podcast show talking about John Locke. And looking at his character in the, in the first season and second season, and I just I, I just had to call in, and uh, Matt, you were there talking about uh, that fire plus water episode. I really disliked that episode, but uh, some of the things that you said about it were were really interesting. I, I 
I always hated that scene where uh, John Locke beat up Charlie. Never much liked that. Thought that was kind of stupid writing. But uh, you were talking about uh, John Locke and Aaron and how there's some weird things going on with that. I never really thought of that. So uh, I appreciate you uh, putting those thoughts out there. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you were talking about. You kind of referenced that Kurt Yanko guy uh, from the Black Rock and some, uh, some theory he has. And I, I haven't heard that. So maybe you could talk about what, what you mean that Locke has some plans for Aaron or what what that mean? A man in black was thinking about Aaron? I don't know what he meant. I just want to say, uh, hope you appreciate that Miss Leslie. She's she's pretty amazing, man. Uh, to, to, to have someone next to you who's always kind of complimenting your theories and uh, telling you what a great job you do, that that's spectacular. And uh, Leslie does a lot of great stuff herself, but it's just nice to hear a co-host that uh, gives you props when you work hard and come up with something good. That's nice. Alright, well, again, just want to say thank you. Your, your Keith Lost podcast has been essential for me to get through this long, ugly, crappy hiatus. And I uh, really appreciate the hard work you put into your show every week. You take care. This is Lost Seal 316. Over <laughs> and I'm telling you that Lost to Seal 316 is actually someone who you've probably seen or heard before on some podcast. So, here's what I'm going to do. The first person to email me at keystolost at gmail.com with three words for Sawyer and a rock and roll moment submission and the right guess of who Lost to Sill 316 is I will send you a free copy of my crappy little demo CD of me playing songs uh, that I wrote that are kind of in a Benfold style. I'll send it to you for free. So, first email with a Sawyer three-word submission or thoughts about Sawyer, a lost rock and roll moment, and the right guess as to who Lost to Sill 316 is, you get a demo of my songs so there you go now I responded because this came into me as a voicemail attachment on an email I responded via email to lost to sill 316 with this my first thought yeah Leslie is awesome she's absolutely fantastic the Aaron Locke thing as I look back on some scenes with season five eyes, as Mr. Yanko likes to say, that was my Kurt Yanko reference. And as I believe the island's influence, which is Jacob and MIB, is affecting Locke via the sickness from the smoke monster, I find it interesting that Locke has taken particular interest in Aaron at key points. For instance, in numbers, as Locke's building a crib for Aaron on Claire's birthday. First off, how did Locke know it was her birthday? She doesn't reveal this until after he's practically finished with the crib, yet he says happy birthday as if he knew all along. Secondly, with the world gone mad in search of Hugo, Locke, the best tracker, is not involved. On top of that, he asks a couple of things about Claire that would normally seem benign, but if Locke is under the influence, then Claire remembering what happened to her and the name of the baby might possibly be important. 
2. Fire plus water. Locke's been in the hatch almost all season. He now suddenly comes out to dote over Aaron. It just seemed a little weird to me, and there's no other reason stated for him to leave the hatch. We have seen a couple of instances where it's made pretty obvious in prior episodes and later episodes that Locke is staying at the hatch for the most part, not on the beach. The timing is just odd, especially with Aaron being in peril and Locke to the rescue. So my thought is this, that somehow Aaron is very important to the island and that Locke is being sent uh, to protect Aaron or to prevent something about Aaron. One of the two, he's getting an idea to do this. Again, I won't say that he's not in control. I think he's in control of his actions, but I just feel like he's getting an idea on that something is up with Aaron and he needs to be there one way or the other. Turns out that Charlie thinks he's trying to save Aaron. We don't know if that really puts Aaron in any peril or not. But, of course, then Locke really beats Charlie down for his actions. Which, you know, is, as I said in earlier podcast, I think is justified. I mean, it's the only way you're going to get Charlie to quit. And, plus, he believes that Charlie is now under the influence of drugs again. And so, he may truly just be protecting Aaron. But how did he know? that all this was going on. Not sure. So, this is how Lost the Sill 316 responded. Overall, I chalk it up to bad writing. Damon and Carlton needed to milk the season, came up with another relationship pairing that would dramatically separate Charlie from Claire, so they threw Locke in the mix. Shoehorned is more appropriate. Hmm. Numbers. They just used Locke to even out Claire. It was a nice moment. The happy birthday line is probably reading too much into it. But this is the most interesting notion you've brought up. I give it a 20% chance of really coming to fruition. Fire plus water. Yeah, this is just bad. They did some lock adjustments to make Charlie jealous, which would lead to the fight. I give no credibility to this ep at all. So... Those are Lost to Sill 316's thoughts, and you know, it, to be honest, Lost to Sill 316, I, you know, I'm seeing your point on all of that, so that makes it, uh, I'm kind of going to step back from what I sent that email from, uh, and I will just chalk that up to bad writing. Thanks again for your responses and for your initial voicemail, and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Again, folks, Lost to Still 316 is someone you've heard before on a podcast. So, if you can tell me who it is, and you submit with your guests a three words for Sawyer and a rock and roll moment in Lost submission, which includes your scene that you think is a rock and roll scene and a song that you think goes along with it, you don't have to submit the actual MP3. I'll take care of that. You just send me the ideas, and I will mix it all together and put it on a special. And the first person who does this, who sends in all three things that I require, gets a free copy of my demo CD. So there you go. Thanks, Lost to Sill 316. And we have another voicemail. They didn't leave their name or any kind of call sign, so we'll call them anonymous caller number one. And their thoughts on Locke. So here's that voicemail. Hey, I'm just calling in about your John Locke's 
special. I agree with what you said about him getting information from the island or the mystery man, but I don't think to the extent of it's controlling what he's uh, doing. Because we saw several occasions that he was having dreams, like in Cabin Fever and Deus Ex Machina, I believe, when he saw Boone all bloodied and uh, the beach craft crashing. So, yeah, I just wanted to call in to comment, and bye. And thank you, caller, for those points. Yeah, you know, the controlling aspect, I think, is of, of my theory was probably wrong, and I am amending that uh, slightly. I do believe that the influence makes him make choices that he wouldn't normally make. But I don't believe that it's like he's a puppet or a marionette on strings and he's just being pulled by, you know, Jacob or MIB. I just think that some kind of influence is placed on Locke so strongly via this illness from the smoke monster that he doesn't necessarily make a choice that he would make if he were off the island. Let me just put it that way. So, thank you again very much for those thoughts. I really appreciate them, and we hope you call back again sometime. Let's get into some tweets that I got. Uh, this one is from Tom Wilson 23 who is Tom from simplytelevision.blogspot.com. We uh, read one of his emails in an earlier podcast, and he sent me these tweets in rebuttal. So... He says, in rebuttal of your rebuttal of my email, I have a theory as to how Locke could be getting instructions about the island. My theory is that he is getting a sixth sense due to the time travel. I think all of the mirror images are as a result of the past, present, and future of the island having leaked onto each other. This explains why Locke lost his leg by the beechcraft in Deus Ex Machina. Ethan shot him there in season 5. So the reason he knows about the moth and the rain is that the future time where MIB takes over him has in a small way bled into his past. That's that's an interesting theory, Tommy, and I just want to bring up a couple things about it. One, you said the reason Locke loses his legs at the Pearl is because Ethan shot him there. This is all true and possible. But remember that Locke loses feeling in his legs in Deus Ex Machina actually at the hatch. When he sets up the trebuchet and it doesn't work and it blows all apart, he's got a piece of that trebuchet in his leg and he's not even feeling it yet. Later that night he goes and he gets a fire poker basically, a stick fire poker, and puts it on his leg and he doesn't feel the pain from the burn. So while I can see the... Ethan shooting John and John losing the feeling of his leg seemingly connected by your viewpoint John actually regains the use of his legs at the Pearl and walks away in addition to that he loses the use of his legs before he ever gets to the Pearl so it could just be a difference of of, of approaching the moment or the location and leaving the location. I'm not going to totally discount your theory. I, I just 
wanted to make sure that you understood that the events of John losing the feeling in his leg happened clearly a full day before the event of him and Boone going to the beach craft. As far as the moth and the rain and things like that, that's pretty interesting too. I have a question and I would like for you to clarify your theory about what you mean by MIB taking over John. Because MIB never really takes over John. In my theory, all he does is influence some decisions of John. But he never actually takes him over. And we've never seen that happen. The real John Locke is laying in a coffin in a Jira Flight 316 until it is removed by Alana and brought to the Fortoed statue. All MIB is doing is duplicating John Locke's body and using some kind of methodology, perhaps not unlike Miles' ability to extract memories from the dead, for be able to live through their memories or remember their memories after they're dead. I think that's all MIB is doing too. So he never truly is John Locke. He never takes the actual John Locke over. He just impersonates him. Did, does that make sense? Uh, I hope so. Thank you very much for those tweets, though. I really appreciate it. And if you can get back with me about what you mean by MIB taking over John, then I'll be happy to uh, comment on your thoughts about the moth and the rain and, and how that's bleeding back to John. Thanks. All right, folks, and now we've come to a point in the show where I'm going to be clearing a lot of the memory of my email and things out because I'm about to unleash upon you one email and multiple voicemails from Sergeant Drano. Let me just preface this by saying that I feel Sergeant Drano is one of the best thinkers, one of the best lost thinkers that we have out there who is contributing. He's called into Donald's podcast many times. He's now a regular panel member of the Lostaholics Rewatch, and he does a great job on that. He's the author of a absolutely fantastic forum page, LostTV-Forum.com, where it's called Locks Lost Luggage, and it is an absolute amazing collection of the things that Locke has with him in the real world. He's found the actual items that are used. He describes them, their uses, how well they've been used in the show or not. It's an absolutely fantastic collection of stuff. And I even did an interview with Sergeant Drano regarding this uh, in a prior podcast, which was just absolutely, it was fascinating to me. And he's so knowledgeable about this stuff and knowledgeable about John Locke as well which is why I feel it's really important that I get all of these voicemails out and let you all hear them. It doesn't change anything of my theory about the smoke monster, but some of these voicemails that you're going to hear have changed my perspective on the level of control that the illness has over John Locke. I'm no longer thinking of John Locke as a marionette or a puppet, and that's contributed widely here to a lot of Sergeant Drano's voicemails, emails, and such. But as far as Locke being influenced, I just can't change my mind until I'm proven by the show otherwise. And that's here nor there. 
Sergeant Drano's thoughts are very important. And if you're thinking the same way that I'm thinking, I need you to really listen to the, some of these thoughts because they are, in fact, very intelligent. They're very poignant. And into a degree of speaking, looking at it from a factual standpoint, they can be proven true time and time again. So I can't discredit anything that Sergeant Drano is about to say or that I'm about to read him saying. I just have to say that I don't subscribe to some of his interpretations of things. And he will, of course, tell you that he doesn't subscribe to my interpretations of things. Until the show proves us one way or the other, you know, we can't really say. But what I can tell you is, you're going to hear S Sergeant Drano in these voicemails referencing Station 7. I want you to look for that podcast in the future because it's going to be a fantastic podcast. Sergeant Drano is putting together a podcast for himself called Station 7, which will be coming out soon, I'm sure, uh, at least before Season 6 comes out, slightly before, if not right at. And you need to look for this and subscribe to it immediately because, as I said, I think Sergeant Drano is one of the best thinkers in Lost. I put him right up there with Kurt Yanko and, and Dan and Nancy Drew from the Black Rock podcast. I think those folks are just awesome the way they look at things and scrutinize them and come up with ideas as to what it's about. And they've been right many, many, many times. And I'm not going to say that Sergeant Drano isn't right either. I'm just, I have my crackpot theory and I'm sticking to it. So I'm not even really going to comment on any of this stuff that Sergeant says because I want you to objectively listen to what he has to say and make up your own mind. And if in the end you think I'm totally wrong, that's awesome because he will have, of course, made you think twice about what I was thinking about. And that's what this show is so cool about. It brings us to the water cooler, so to speak. It polarizes us. It makes us discuss things and try and convince each other of our viewpoints. And I love that so much. And Sergeant Drano's points here are awesome. And I want you to listen to him a lot. First, I'm going to read an email from him, which was a critique of our analysis of Jack and Kate. Hey, Matt and Leslie. A few words about your assessments of both Kate and Jack as of the incident. You felt like both characters had matured to a degree and have grown since we've seen them on the show. I disagree. Granted, Kate showed real promise when she questioned Jack's plan to detonate the bomb, when she asked how that became an acceptable thing to do. But then she completely caved, completely flipped on the issue by the end of the season, actively helping Jack blow that bomb. You guys have suggested that even in helping Jack, she shows more maturity. But let's think about this. How is detonating a nuclear bomb on the island very likely killing a whole bunch of innocent people in order to prevent the crash of 815 or hypothetically improve Claire's situation? How is that really any different than blowing up her dad in order to save her mother and herself from further abuse? It's the same thing Kate always does defaulting to the ends justifying the means, mostly only being focused on things that affect her directly and acting on emotional impulses that she only halfway understands. And Jack. I've heard many folks say over season 5 that Jack in the 70s became like Locke, that he grew and matured. I disagree. What Jack did is he became like Jack in season 1, before Locke got him to step up and take some responsibility in White Rabbit, 
Jack didn't become more zen, he simply withdrew from responsibility just as he did before White Rabbit. Jack was sulking. People didn't want to listen to him, so he took his ball and went home. People thought that Jack exhibited more faith in the 70s, but I don't think so. Faith in what? Locke, I think we all agree, was receiving actual information from the island, was given actual reasons why he should take the actions he took. Even if it turns out the island was conning him, at least Locke had several reasons for doing the things he did. In the 70s, Jack wasn't having visions, wasn't getting island information, no directives from Jacob. Jack is just going on his gut, which is pretty much what he always does. It's true that he manages to play nice in Dharmaville for a few days when he first gets there, but as soon as Faraday shows up, he's back to the same Jack as always. He suddenly becomes certain that blowing up the bomb is the right thing to do, and nothing nobody can convince him otherwise. Same old pig-headed my way or the highway Jack that we've always seen. Jack jumping to the conclusion that he should listen to Faraday is absolutely no different than Jack jumping to the conclusion that he should listen to Naomi. And just like with Naomi, after Faraday's death, Jack is still adamant on sticking to the plan in spite of any warning signs or any words of caution from his friends. Same old Kate, same old Jack. Zero character growth. Okay, Sergeant, thank you for that thought. I'm just going to give you the last word there because I think that's pretty interesting observations on Jack and Kate. I disagree, but that's here nor there, as I said before. Great thoughts, sir. And in a continued theme of letting you have the last word, sir, here is your 35 minutes of voicemails to the Keys to Lost podcast played in their entirety. Folks, I do want you to listen to this stuff because they're very good points and they're very well thought out and they're very well presented. So, Sergeant Drano, over to you, sir. Hey, Matt and Leslie, this is Sergeant Drano from Station 7 and Lost TV. In your first John Locke podcast, you were responding to my assertion that John Locke acts for the greater good. For your example, you raised Locke and Boone's expedition to the beechcraft in which Boone fell and ultimately died. You couldn't see how this was for the greater good. But in the season two finale, we learned that Locke pounding on the hatch because of what happened to Boone is what saved Desmond's life, what stopped Desmond from killing himself. If Desmond hadn't killed himself, the swan would have gone into system failure with no failsafe key getting turned. The evidence indicates that the results of that would have been catastrophic. Specifically, Dr. Chang says the power source beneath the orchid is a source of almost limitless energy. Daniel Faraday says the energy under the swan is 30,000 times more powerful than that. Nuclear power plants were in common usage by 1977, so I think we can assume that Chang's almost limitless energy comment that is powerful enough to allow them to manipulate time is at the very least as powerful as a nuclear power plant of that era and probably significantly more powerful. Russian RBMK reactors developed in the 1950s produced 1.5 gigawatts of energy. If the orchid only produces the same amount, then that means the swan produces 30,000 times more than that, 45,000 gigawatts. That is roughly equivalent to a 34 megaton thermonuclear bomb that never stops exploding. That's far more powerful than anything the U.S. has ever detonated and only 30% less powerful than the most powerful bomb ever exploded, which yielded a seismic shock that circled the globe three times. 
and that's an explosion that stops, whereas the swan just keeps going. We are talking extinction-level event. The episode in question, Deus Ex Machina, is framed in the first scene by the mousetrap game. A mousetrap is essentially a trick. The mouse is tricked into going into the trap by the cheese lure, just as Locke and Boone were tricked into going to the beechcraft by the lure of getting into the hatch. The mousetrap game is essentially a Rube Goldberg machine, made out of unusual and disparate parts that interact and work together in a complex, unexpected way in order to achieve a desired outcome. In this particular case, that outcome is saving the world. And that's what I had to say about that. Looking forward to your next podcast. Hey there, Keith Lost. This is Sergeant Drano from Station 7 at Lost TV. Uh, calling as expected uh, in regards to your conversation on Part 2 about uh, whether or not the implosion of the hatch screwed our losties. Uh, I think there's there's some important points that need to be considered when you think about this. Uh, the key turning is, yeah, Locke went to the pearl and lost his faith. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that Locke going to the pearl is something that was engineered by the island. The island got Echo to force Locke to go to the pearl. Uh, it set up both of these people, Locke and Echo, in order to engineer the situation that would ultimately force Desmond to turn that key. If you go back to Flashes Before Your Eyes and listen to what Hawking tells Desmond, that is something that had to happen in order to save everyone. Uh, Hawking that the most important thing Desmond will ever do is go to that island and push that button for three years until he is forced to turn that fail-safe key. That's actually the words to use is forced to turn the fail-safe key. This is something that's been set up on purpose uh, for the greater good of everybody, possibly the entire world, uh, if, if my estimates of the power output of the swan are anywhere close to being accurate. And so that's my uh, perspective on that. And I look forward to your next podcast. Bye. Hey, this is Sergeant Drano from uh, Station 7 at Lost TV calling back about two minutes later to help wrap Leslie's head around the whole key turning thing. Uh, like I said before, this is something that was set up by the in order to engineer the situation which occurred, which was Desmond turning the key and being sent uh, flashing back into his past, I believe that key-turning event is what essentially made Desmond the exception to the rules that he is today, and I think that's going to play some sort of pivotal role in the course of our story and in Season 6. Um, she wonders how he made it out from the hatch after going down there to turn that key. Well, I have a theory about that as well. It's the same way that Echo and Lot survived. There were all three of them in the hatch while it was floating around them, and the way they came out, the reason they survived, is because of uh, something happened very similar to what we saw happen through the course of Season 5. They simply flashed out. They basically were transported from one position in time into another position at a different point in time, kind of like how Locke was transported uh, and Ben was transported by the frozen donkey wheel into Tunisia. Uh, when Desmond turned the key... All three of them were transported a short distance physically into the future uh, and a short distance away from the implosion area. Uh, and as for Desmond showing up naked, well, my theory about that is that uh, <laughs> when Desmond turned the key, he flashed three years into his past. And, no, well, several years into his past. Now, he flashed back to 1996. 
Well, I think his his clothes physically traveled back to 1990 to the bottom of the hatch. So if Kelvin goes down there in 1996, he's going to find a little pile of clothes and wonder where they came from. Uh, talk to you later. Got another call coming in. Bye. Hey, man, Leslie. It's Sergeant Greeno from Second 7 and Lost TV. I was just listening to your comments in part two of your Locke podcast about uh, comparing uh, Locke's knifing of Naomi to Kate uh, killing her father by blowing up the house he was in and how if one is murder, then the other is murder. But there is a difference between the two. Uh, Kate's father isn't really an an imminent threat to anybody. He's just a drunk guy on a bed and Kate blows him up and kills him in cold blood. Naomi, on the other hand, was about to make contact with her satellite phone in a situation where she had been on us all trussed up and ready to go. And what season four showed us is uh, once the freighter guys had been Linus in custody, they were going to torch the island. Uh, so he actually stopped her in just the nick of time before she could call the freighter and tell them that she had Linus and they would have then sent in that mercenary team to go get him and to kill everybody else on the island. So I think that's a pretty big difference between the two. Uh, what do you guys think? Looking forward to your next podcast. Bye. Hey, this is Sergeant Grena from Station 7 Lost TV. Coming back in regards to your comments about um, Locke getting Sawyer to kill his father for him and how that's basically the same as murder. Um, I don't think that's really the case. About the most you could possibly charge Locke with is conspiracy to hire Sawyer to kill his father, but Sawyer never actually agreed to do that, and Locke ultimately agreed to leave the decision of what Sawyer would do up to Sawyer, and it was Sawyer's decision as to whether the man died or not. Uh, So I don't think we can really pin that one on Locke. Talk to you later. Bye. Sergeant Grano on mind control. In part two of your Jack Profile episode, you responded to an email I sent you about John Locke. You expressed your belief that Locke has at times been under the influence of the island, that Hunter Locke is not really Locke, that at these times Locke's mind and actions have literally been controlled by an island entity like Nemesis or Jacob. You believe that pre-island Locke has been the real Locke, and that young Locke, who said he liked boxing, fishing, cars, and sports, and older Locke, the hunter, has been locked denying who he really is. The thing is, by stating such a view, you are basically taking the side of nemesis. You are saying that people can have people have a certain nature that they cannot escape. You are who you are, and it doesn't matter what you want to be. My thinking is more in line with Jacob. People have a choice, and generally end up being who they want to be based on those choices. Unless you are literally bound to a wheelchair or limited by some other physical condition, being a hunter or being anything else is just a matter of knowledge, training, and experience gained via your desire to achieve that goal. Learned muscle memory and practice. Locke is a hunter because he has the knowledge, desire, and eventually the physical ability to be a hunter. It's what he wants to be and therefore is indeed part of his nature. We make our own destiny. Our path is shaped by our choices, which is in turn shaped by our desires. You're a musician because you want to be. It doesn't matter what some science teacher says you can't do. The terminology under the influence implies that Locke is not in his right mind, when I don't think we really have any reason to believe that. Certainly there are many examples of Locke getting information from the island, but getting information is not the same as your mind or actions not being controlled by yourself. You get information via your cell phone, but that doesn't mean you are under the influence of your phone. Your mind and actions are still your own. 
It is your choice on how to act on the information you have received. And the overarching theme of loss is not one of mind control. It is that of the long con, tricking people into taking certain actions by feeding them misinformation. We've seen that one a lot, and we've seen that happen to Locke quite a few times, too. But that's not mind control. That's not controlling Locke's physical actions. It is still Locke's thought processes, Locke's reasoning, by which he chooses how to act based on the information he has. One could argue that the island has been conning Locke, but I don't think one can argue that it has been outright controlling his mind or actions. How would that even work? You think that sometimes he is in control, so how would you think you would be perceiving the times that he is not in control? Is there evidence that he has gaps in his memory? Blackouts. If not blackouts, when he is in control, wouldn't he be cognizant of the times that he wasn't? And if the island can literally take over his mind and body and make him act in any way it chooses, then what is the need to trick him at all? Why bother with the dreams, the visits to the cabin, the conversations with Christian, any of that stuff, if the island can just, just control his mind and body and do whatever it wants? Even with his latest reveal, the new evil lock, it's, not clear, it's clearly not a matter of mind and body control, since it's a completely different mind, completely different body, and not the lock that was in the body. Sergeant Grail on the sickness. I think that there is no quote-unquote the sickness. We are seeing various different phenomena that various different people just happen to refer to by the same term. Danielle is referring to Robert suddenly coming out of the hole talking about security systems. Kelvin is talking about poisonous gas released during the purge. And then Kelsey is talking about temporal effects suffered from exposure to the electromagnetic barrier. I don't think any of them are talking about Locke's ability to receive messages from the island on where to go to rescue doctors hanging off cliffs. You think that Locke has been infected by the sickness since walkabout. By infected, you think that Smokey pulled him down a hole like what happened with Robert and Danielle's team. But if that happened to Locke in walkabout, why does Smokey try to drag him down again in Exodus? An infected Robert says of Smokey, it's a security system guarding the temple. We have never heard a lot talk like that, uh, not even once. So uh, what do you what do you make of that? And that's all. Bye. Sergeant Drano on Nemesis. I think you guys are making a pretty big mistaken assumption about uh, the men in black during your rewatches. You guys are looking to see if the man in black is influencing Lot to get him to sow seeds of discord, to get people to fight, destroy, corrupt, etc. The mistake is in thinking that this is something the man in black would want. If you re-examine that scene with the man in black, you will see that fight, destroy, corrupt is actually something that the man in black doesn't want. He is irritated that Jacob brings people to the island because fight, destroy, corrupt is what he thinks will result, and he doesn't like that result. For him, that is a negative outcome. That is, always ends the same. Fight, destroy, corrupt is what Man in Black sees as the repetitive cycle caused by Jacob's actions, bringing people to the island. And in my opinion, that is precisely why the Man in Black wants to kill Jacob, to end the cycle, to end the loop, to literally find a loophole. From my perspective, I actually believe that Jacob and the Men in Black may want the same end goal. They just have different ideas about how best to achieve it. You think that it's in the Men in Black's best interest to prove himself correct, but why? If the result is undesirable, would he want that result just so he can say that he's right? And if he's proving himself right by literally controlling the minds and actions of the people that come to the island, 
He hasn't proven anything at all. It's no different than Shannon proving she can catch a fish when really it's Charlie that caught the fish. And that's all for that one. Bye. Sergeant Drano on what motivates John Locke. Throughout the series, Locke has demonstrated a single basic idea that drives his actions. If you want to know why Locke does something, it can all be boiled down to this basic idea. Quote, Everything Locke does, he believes, is in the best interest of everybody. Unquote. Damon Lindelof, Entertainment Weekly, 2005, Lost Season 1. Quote, I'm doing what's best for all of us. Unquote. John Locke, Adrift, Lost Season 2. Quote, All I did, all I have ever done, has been in the best interest of all of us. Unquote. John Locke, The Beginning of the End. Lost Season 4. John Locke is a utilitarian, like his Season 5 namesake, Jeremy Bentham, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. As a pure utilitarian, Locke feels motivated to act in a way that he thinks is for the greater good of the group, even at the expense of himself. As such, he is one of the most selfless characters on the show, sacrificing status, respect, friendship, even ultimately his very life, for the good of the people he regards as his family. And that's what I had to say about that. Talk to you later. Sergeant Drano on Christian Shepherd. I think Christian Shepherd is exactly who and what he says he is. Christian Shepherd speaking on Jacob's behalf. We have the missing body. We have Christian claiming that Jack is his son to characters who wouldn't know any better, Vincent Locke. We have Christian appearing as Christian to people to whom Christian has no significance, no reason to pretend to be Christian. People like Son, Frank, Locke, Vincent, and Michael's last words are, who are you? The two most obvious smoky manifestations we have seen in the show are Yummy and Alex. Both took on images that had great meaning to the people they were appearing to, and both were wearing the same clothes that they died in, the same clothes that Echo and Ben would be most familiar with. Christian, on the other hand, changes clothes. And not just out of his suit and into casual clothing, even the casual clothing changes the various different times we have seen him. In the cabin telling Locke to move the island, in the orchid right before Locke turns the wheel, and in the barracks talking to Son and Frank. Christian wears different clothes every time. Yemi and Alex, the same clothes every time. Why would a manifestation wear different clothes? Why would a ghost change clothes? Christian is Christian. As for speaking on Jacob's behalf, I believe that too. If Christian wanted to, to deceive Locke, the simplest thing for him to do would be to just claim that he is Jacob. Locke doesn't know what Jacob looks like, nor does he know what Christian looks like. There is no reason for a Christian to say, I can speak on his behalf, when it would be simpler just to say, yes, I'm Jacob. Therefore, my logical conclusion is that Christian is telling the truth. What do you think? Talk to you later. Hey, Benton Leslie. This is Sergeant Drano from Station 7 Lost TV. Uh, calling in regards to a comment that Leslie made in Episode 2 of your Lock special. Uh, she was... Uh, she was she was stating that she didn't think we had seen any moments where Locke was introspective about his actions. Um, I think she might have been referring to specifically season three, but it might have been the series as a whole. I just wanted to give one such example of a moment like this uh, in season three, in further instructions, uh, when 
uh, Charlie is trying to follow Locke on his mission to rescue Echo. And Locke is actually trying to discourage Charlie from doing this because, as he says, bad things can happen to people who hang around me, Charlie. And that's pretty clearly a reference to what happened with Boone and, once again, to his displeasure at that outcome. Uh, but anyway, I thought that was a moment of introspection. And there's more, but I thought that was a pretty good one. Look forward to your next podcast. Bye. Hey there, Matt and Leslie. This is Sergeant Drano from Station 7 and Lost TV. I just got finished listening to your Part 1 uh, special on the character of Locke, which is, of course, my favorite subject to talk about. Uh, so I've taken notes throughout, and I have a, I'm going to touch on quite a number of different points here. I love discussing this topic. Uh, and before I forget, uh, thanks for the plug on the Locke's Lost Luggage. Uh, let's see. The first thing I've got is that good people uh, are easiest to deceive. You made some comments about how often it is that Locke's been fooled by this, that, and the other. That all is very true, but something I've noticed throughout my career is that honest people are easier, are easy to deceive, whereas the people that are harder to trick are, of course, people that are themselves deceptive. Uh, people tend to see others as being similar to themselves. Honest people tend to think that most other people are pretty honest, and deceptive people tend to think that most other people are deceptive. So one of the reasons that Locke is so easily fooled is because he's an honest guy, and he expects other people to be honest too. Uh, Lostpedia talks about uh, phone sex Helen. Uh, I have always maintained that not really consistent with Locke's character that he would be talking to a phone sex person. I've always believed that it would be more consistent that that was probably one of those psychic friend people uh, that with Locke believing in destiny and all this stuff, that he was probably trying to speak to one of those people to try and get some read on that. Um, then you guys have talked about uh, how Richard's visiting Locke throughout his lifetime was revealed to be uh, revealed to be not something that was particularly special in season five. I would agree that Richard had basically fairly mundane reasons for visiting Locke throughout his life, but what we must not forget is that when there are other things that still indicate Locke was special, uh, like his ability to fight off diseases as an infant, and as a child when he drew the smoke monster, and, of course, when Jacob revived him uh, when, he, when he was pushed out of the building. Uh, Richard supposedly communicates with Jacob, so what I'd like to know is why he is asking Jack about Locke's specialness. Uh, shouldn't Jacob have already provided a definitive answer on this if Richard truly communicates with him? Uh, one of the recurring themes we see in Lost is people doing actions that initially appear evil or bad, but whose motives ultimately turn out to be good once we are given the proper context. And probably the best example of that uh, in a single episode, well, I guess in, throughout the course of two episodes, was Jen in season one, where the first episode where we see Jen in flashback, it, he looks like this sort of evil mob guy that's beating people up and is washing blood off his hands, when later we find out that actually uh, he did what he did in order to save that particular guy's life. 
And that's actually a recurring theme in Lost. We see our various characters uh, do things that might initially appear to make them be bad guys, but then we, later we find out their reasons for doing them and they're a lot more understandable. Kind of like uh, when Michael and Jen and Sawyer uh, first encountered the uh, the tailies, and they thought they were the others, and they thought they were these violent guys dumping them in a pit. And later we find out why exactly the tailies are acting like that. Uh, and that's been a big theme with Locke, too. Uh, even more so with Locke, because our, the creators do like to keep him to be sort of ambiguous and mysterious. So we'll repeatedly have situations where Locke does something that seems a little shady, and then later, eventually... Or sometimes we never do find out, uh, but but later we we eventually find out why it was he did that, or, or like I said, sometimes we don't. And of course, the interesting thing about Locke is I do agree with you that uh, not so much that he's under the influence of Jacob or MIB or the island, but that he does definitely get information from the island. I think that's indisputable. Uh, and the thing with Locke is you never really know exactly what he knows. You never really know why he's taking the actions he's taking. So you don't really know how good his reasons are or how bad his reasons are for for making the decisions that he makes. And, and the other thing with Locke is that he's continually finds himself caught in situations that make him look bad, uh, even though he's, he's trying to do the right thing. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, you talked about Locks need to feel special. Uh, everyone would like to feel that they are special, but I think Locke is interesting because he has never really believed it. Yes, he believes he has a destiny, but he does not think that he is important or special, and he never has. That is why he has repeatedly been willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Uh, he actually thinks that his friends, that the people he knows, are more important, are of more value than he is. Uh, people keep dangling leadership in front of Locke, but this has never been something he has really sought or desired. Uh, Locke is happier acting as an advisor rather than a leader. Uh, he's never really shown a desire to lead. Uh, he did take on that mantle a little bit in season four, but that was really only because he had no other choice at the time. Uh, I really do think you guys are misunderstanding the relationship between Locke and Cooper. Uh, Locke does not need to feel important to Cooper. Uh, it's that he's trying to understand Cooper. As you guys did mention, Locke is a seeker, and he seeks to understand the things around him to solve mysteries that he doesn't understand. As a fundamentally good person, like I talked about earlier, Locke just cannot understand the evil of Cooper's actions and consequently becomes obsessed with trying to learn why, why Cooper would act this way, and he just cannot comprehend that Cooper is simply evil. Uh, Locke, is also, uh, Locke also continually seeks to prove to both Cooper and to himself that he is not like his father. That is why he chooses to help Cooper get the money, but then refuses to take any himself. He was making a statement of contrast between them. While Cooper pretends to befriend Locke only to screw him out of a kidney, Locke shows that his act is truly selfless. So what he did in that episode was to to sort of demonstrate to Cooper how Locke is the better man. And of course, when Helen catches Locke, this is part of that recurring theme I was talking about, of Locke getting caught in situations that make him look bad, 
when he is actually acting benevolently. Uh, then you guys discussed uh, whether or not Locke is a hunter. And Matt made the comment that he's not a hunter because he wouldn't shoot the police officer. Uh, hunter is not the same as murderer. Locke is a good man, and Echo uh, wore the island, depending on your interpretation. After uh, Locke saves Echo, uh, you hear Echo say, you're a hunter, John. And Locke has killed to defend others. Uh, Locke's issue is that he is not a cold-blooded murderer. Uh, he will kill in defense of others or the island, but he's not going to kill somebody in cold blood. And nor should he. Uh, the issue with Naomi was uh, that if Naomi had been allowed to speak on her phone while Ben Linus was present with the group at the radio tower, uh, she would have given a coded phrase uh, to let the freighter know that she had Ben Linus in custody. Uh, Keeney's men would have immediately been dispatched to collect him, and then everyone on the island would have been slaughtered. Uh, Locke barely made it up there in time. He had a bullet hole through his gut. He hiked all the way up the mountain, and he got there at the top uh, just in time to see her about to, to complete that call. And all he had was one knife and a gun with one bullet in it. And so he did what he had to to stop her from making that call. Uh, and that's the closest uh, that he's ever come to, <laughs> to actually killing somebody in cold blood. But even then, it, it really wasn't cold blood because you can kill somebody with a phone just like you can kill them with a gun. I mean, it all depends on who's at the other end of that phone and what they can do. Uh, Leslie made the comment that Locke loses everything by being so open. But the thing to keep in mind is that if you aren't open, you can't win in the first place. You have to take chances to succeed in life, take gambles in order to to finally succeed, and people may fail many times before they finally do succeed. Uh, ah, and, uh, and Matt was uh, talking about the Minkowski cube versus the many worlds theory. Uh, and uh, he made the comment that Minkowski cube is the MIB argument. Uh, I would disagree with that because MIB is looking for a loophole. If MIB really does believe in Minkowski cube, then there is no loophole. It's a closed circuit, and there's nothing he can do either. Everything is going to be what it's going to be. Uh, I don't think many worlds applies to loss either, uh, Well, because the Darleton are on record is saying that they're not going to do parallel universes. Uh, it seems to me that Lost might be using, uh, the best term I can, I can use for it is what I would call the yesterday's enterprise theory of time travel, uh, because uh, it's, it's the rules postulated in uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Yesterday's Enterprise, where the Enterprise C uh, travels forward in time to the future uh, and changes history, uh, making the uh, Federation at war with the Klingons. Uh, they eventually go back into the past with someone from that alternate future, uh, Tasha Yar, who's originally dead in the original timeline. When they go back into the past, it restores history to the way it was. But because Tasha Yar went back in time and was not in her native timeline, she continues to exist, even though when the timeline is, is uh, restored, 
she should just be dead. That version of her shouldn't have ever existed because she supposedly they supposedly altered history back the way it was. But because she wasn't in her native timeline when they changed it, she continues to exist. And I think that is the rules that Lost is using. Uh, that's the uh, those are the rules that would make a grandfather paradox impossible. You can go back in time, kill your own grandfather. In theory, that would create a paradox that would prevent you from succeeding because it would mean you would never exist. But with these particular rules, uh, you could kill your own grandfather because you'd continue to exist regardless because uh, you're not in your native time when you do it. So you would continue to exist even though you, you seem to lose your origin. Uh, Daniel's journal makes reference to imaginary time and imaginary space. And I think that's what Lost is dealing with. Lost deals with the concept of converting real time and space into imaginary time and space and vice versa. Okay, I was talking about imaginary time and space versus real time and space. Uh, for instance, Daniel uh, writes in his journal about uh, the imaginary time and space and real time and space um, when Desmond uh, turns the key and flashes back into uh, 1996 and relives a portion of his life, uh, life over again, uh, in his mind, he remembers things happening a different way. He remembers the bartender getting hit by the bat. He certainly doesn't remember meeting Miss Hawking uh, in the store and, and the ring stuff and her talking to him about going to an island and pushing a button for three years. So in his mind, in his memory, in his imagination, uh, he has a version of history that's different from the version that he is now reliving again. So with Lost, uh, it seems to me like instead of creating a, a, an alternate universe or sticking with a Minkowski cube, what we have is certain parts of history that are being overwritten, completely replaced with whatever the new version is, but the old version it basically gets converted into imaginary time and space. It, it still exists, but it only exists as information within the minds of the people who made the changes. And I think that's all I've got for that. Hey guys, this is Sergeant Grano filling up your inbox. Now the next thing I wanted to talk about is the leap of faith. Uh, this has always been a very strong recurring theme with John Locke, but I think the thing the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the whole leap of faith is parallel to what to the journey that the audience takes with John Locke. Uh, John Locke goes through these cycles almost of where he has faith, then he doesn't have faith, then he has it again, then he doesn't have it again. And the way the story is told, the audience is is inclined to go through that same experience with Locke. When Locke is on a roll, people people are right there with him. They think that uh, Locke is the guy. When Locke is dead in a coffin or is turning the key in the hatch and the hatch is blowing up, uh, once again, people, the audience, is, is experiencing the same thing. Uh, it's almost like a test to see if the audience will take the same leap of faith or fail to take the same leap of faith that Locke takes. And what is happening now is the same thing that has happened all the other times. It's like Locke said at the hatch with Boone, our faith is being tested. 
it's all a test to see whether our faith can be as strong or even stronger than Locke's faith, uh, whether we can continue to believe that ultimately it's all going to work out in the end and that Locke was right to believe in the island and Locke is right to believe that all these people have a destiny, a positive destiny with this island and that his role in, in their faiths and in helping them achieve their destiny is is ultimately a positive one. And I guess only season six will prove that for sure. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say that I will never love Kate. Never! Hate on Kate. Got to hate on Kate. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. And thank you, Sergeant Drano, for all of those excellent points. They are very well thought out and poignant, as I said before, and I think that they're just awesome. And I hope to hear more of that from you in your new podcast. I wish you luck on that. The Station 7 podcast, folks, be looking for it. It's going to be coming out soon. It's going to be really cool. That's all I'm going to say. It's just going to be a really cool podcast, and I'll be listening, and I hope other people will be too. With that, that kind of closes our feedback special, and we certainly appreciate all the people who have called in, emailed in, tweeted, left comments on our blog. It's been absolutely incredible. Remember, please continue to do so. We need three word submissions for Sawyer and or Ben, because we're looking like it's looking like we're going to definitely do Ben sometime this year as well. So please submit your three words for Ben, your three words for Sawyer. Any thoughts that you have about either of those two characters, we're happy to read on the air. Don't forget, if you can identify Lostasil 316, who that might actually be, and submit a three words for Sawyer and a rock and roll moment for Lost, where you give us a scene that you think is a rock and roll scene and a song that you think goes with it. If you put all those three things together... You get a demo of my folded sand band doing originals of mine for free. So, until next time, thank you so much for listening, and we will be back with our next podcast covering Sawyer soon. Until then, stay lost. Keys to Lost is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all of your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at Lost Cast. Dot blogspot.com.